Part Three of Lorelei of the Red Mist by Lee Douglas Brackett and Ray Bradbury. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three. Faulon said softly, "I hear you, Stark. I hear the other breathing, but they don't speak. They're all right. I didn't mean to do." Faulon smiled. He stepped out on the narrow ledge. He knew where he was going, and his smile was not pleasant. I heard your steps in the passage beyond my room. I knew Beodog was leading you, and where and why. I would have been here sooner, but it's a slow way in the dark. The candle lay in his path. He felt the heat of it close to his leg, and stopped and felt for it, and ground it out. It was dark then, very dark except for a faint smudgy glow from the scrap of ocean that lay along the cave floor. "'It doesn't matter,' Faulon said, "'as long as I came in time.' Stark shifted his weight warily. "'Faulon, I wanted you alone. On this night of all nights I wanted you alone. Beodog fights in my place now, Conan.' My manhood needs proving. Stark strained his eyes in the gloom, measuring the ledge, measuring the place where the skiff was moored. He didn't want to fight Faulon. In Faulon's place he would have felt the same. Stark understood perfectly. He didn't hate Faulon. He didn't want to kill him, and he was afraid of Ron's power over him when his emotions got control. You couldn't keep a determined man from killing you and still be uninvolved emotionally. Stark would be damned if he'd kill anyone to suit Ron. He moved, silently, trying to slip past Faulon on the outside and get into the skiff. Faulon gave no sign of hearing him. Stark did not breathe. His sandals came down lighter than snowflakes. Faulon did not swerve. He would pass Stark with a foot to spare. They came abreast. Faulon's hand shot out and caught in Stark's long black hair. The blind man laughed softly and closed in. Stark swung one from the floor. Do it the quickest way and get clear. But Faulon was fast. He came in so swiftly that Stark's fist jarred harmlessly along his ribs. He was bigger than Stark, and heavier, and the darkness didn't bother him. Stark bared his teeth. Do it quick, brother, and clear out, or that green-eyed she-cat. Faulon's brute bulk weighed him down. Faulon's arm crushed his neck. Faulon's fist was knocking his guts loose. Stark got moving. He'd fought in a lot of places. He'd learned from stokers and tramps, Martian low canalers, red-eyed Nahali in the running gutters of Lahi. He didn't use his knife. He used his knees and feet and elbows and his hands, fist and flat. It was a good fight. Faulon was a good fighter, but Stark knew more tricks. One more, Stark thought. One more and he's out. He drew back for it, and his heel struck Romna lying on the rock. He staggered, and Faulon caught him a clean, swinging blow. Stark fell backward against the cave wall. 
His head cracked the rock. Light flooded crimson across his brain and then paled and grew cooler, a wash of clear silver-green like water. He sank under it. He was tired, desperately tired. His head ached. He wanted to rest, but he could feel that he was sitting up, doing something that had to be done. He opened his eyes. He sat in the stern of a skiff. The long sweep was laid into its crutch, held like a tiller bar against his body. The blade of the sweep trailed astern in the Red Sea, and where the metal touched there was a spurt of silver fire and a swirling of brilliant motes. The skiff moved rapidly through the sullen fog, through a mist of blood in the hot Venusian night. Theodog crouched in the bow, facing Stark. She was bound securely with strips of the white cloth she had worn. Bruises showed dark on her throat. She was watching Stark with the intent, unwinking, perfectly expressionless gaze of a tigress. Stark looked away, down at himself. There was blood on his kilt, a brown smear of it across his chest. It was not his blood. He drew the knife slowly out of its sheath. The blade was dull and crusted, still a little wet. Stark looked at Beodog. His lips were stiff, swollen. He moistened them and said hoarsely, "'What happened?' She shook her head, slowly, not speaking. Her eyes did not waver. A black, cold rage took hold of Stark and shook him. "'Ron!' He rose and went forward, letting the sweep go where it would. He began to untie Beudog's wrists. A shape swam toward them out of the red mist. A long ship with two heavy sweeps bursting fire astern and a slender figurehead shaped like a woman. A woman with hair and eyes of aquamarine. It came alongside the skiff. A rope ladder snaked down. Men lined the low rail. Slender men, with skin that glistened white like powdered snow, and hair the color of distant shallows. One of them said, "'Come aboard, Hugh Stark.' Stark went back to the sweep. It bit into the sea, sending the skiff in a swift arc away from Ron's ship. Grapnos flew, hooking the skiff at thwart and gunwale. Bows appeared in the hands of the men, wicked curving things with barbed wire shafts on the string. The man said again, politely, "'Come aboard.' Hugh Stark finished untying Bayudog. He didn't speak. There seemed to be nothing to say. He stood back while she climbed the ladder and then followed. The skiff was cast loose. The longship veered away, gathering speed. Stark said, where are we going?" The man smiled. To Falga. Stark nodded. He went below with Beodog into a cabin with soft couches covered with spider silk and panels of dark wood beautifully painted, dim fantastic scenes from the past of Ron's people. They sat opposite each other. They still did not speak. They raised Falga in the opal dawn a citadel of basalt cliffs rising sheer from the burning sea with a long arm holding a harbor full of ships. There were green fields inland, and beyond, cloaked in the eternal mists of Venus, 
the mountains of white clouds lifted spaceward. Stark wished that he had never seen the mountains of white cloud. Then, looking at his hands, lean and strong on his long thighs, he wasn't so sure. He thought of Ron waiting for him. Anger, excitement, a confused violence of emotion set him pacing nervously. Beodog sat quietly, withdrawn, waiting. The longship threaded the crowded moorings and slid into place alongside a stone quay. Men rushed to make fast. They were human men, as Stark judged humans, like Beodog and himself. They had the shimmering silver hair and fair skin of the Plateau peoples, the fine-cut faces and straight bodies. They wore leather collars with metal tags, and they went naked like beasts. And they were gaunt and bowed with labor. Here and there a man with pale blue-green hair and resplendent harness stood godlike above the swarming masses. Stark and Beodog went ashore. They might have been prisoners or honored guests, surrounded by their escort from the ship. Streets ran back from the harbor, twisting and climbing crazily up the cliffs. Houses climbed on each other's backs. It had begun to rain, the heavy, steaming downpour of Venus, and the moist heat brought out the choking stench of people, too many people. They climbed, ankle-deep in water, sweeping down the streets that were half-stairway. Thin-naked children peered out of the houses, out of narrow alleys. Twice they passed through market squares, where women with blank faces of defeat drew back from stalls of coarse food to let the party through. There was something wrong. After a while Stark realized it was the silence. In all that horde of humanity no one laughed or sang or shouted. Even the children never spoke above a whisper. Stark began to feel a little sick. Their eyes had a look in them. He glanced at Beodog and away again. The waterfront street ended in a sheer basalt face, honeycombed with galleries. Stark's party entered them, still climbing. They passed level after level of huge caverns open to the sea. There was the same crowding, the same stench, the same silence. Eyes glinted in the half-light. Bare feet moved furtively on stone. Somewhere a baby cried thinly and was hushed at once. They came out on the cliff-top into the clean high air. There was a city here. Broad streets lined with trees, low rambling villas of the black rock set in walled gardens, drowned in brilliant vines and giant ferns and flowers. Naked men and women worked in the gardens, or hauled carts of rubbish through the alleys, or hurried on errands, slipping furtively across the main streets where they intersected the mews. The party turned away from the sea, heading toward an ebon palace that sat like a crown above the city. The steaming rain beat on Stark's bare body, and up here you could get the smell of the rain even through the heavy perfume of the flowers. You could smell Venus in the rain, musky and primitive and savagely alive, a fecund giantess with passion flowers in her outstretched hands. Stark set his feet down like a panther, and his eyes burned a smoky amber.
they entered the palace of Ron. She received them in the same apartment where Stark had come to after the crash. Through a broad archway he could see the high bed where his old body had lain before the life went out of it. The Red Sea steamed under the rain outside, the rusty fog coiling languidly through the open arches of the gallery. Ron watched them lazily from a raised couch set massively into the wall. Her long, sparkling legs sprawled arrogantly across the black spider-silk draperies. This time her tabard was a pale yellow. Her eyes were still the color of shoal water, still amused, still secret, still dangerous. Stark said, So you made me do it after all. And you're angry, she laughed, her teeth showing white and pointed as bone needles. Her gaze held Stark's. There was nothing casual about it. Stark's hawk eyes turned molten yellow like hot gold and did not waver. Beodog stood like a bronze spear, her forearms crossed beneath her bare, sharp breasts. Two of Ron's palace guards stood behind her. Stark began to walk toward Ron. She watched him come. She let him get close enough to reach out and touch her, and then she said slyly, "'It's a good body, isn't it?' Stark looked at her for a moment. Then he laughed. He threw back his head and roared, and struck the great corded muscles of his belly with his fist. Presently he looked straight into Ron's eyes and said, "'I know you.' She nodded. "'We know each other.' Sit down, Hugh Stark. She swung her long legs over to make room, half erect now, looking at Beodog. Stark sat down. He did not look at Beodog. Ron said, Will your people surrender now? Beodog did not move, not even her eyelids. If Faolan is dead, yes. And if he's not? Beodog stiffened. Stark did too. "'Then,' said Beodog quietly, "'they'll wait.' "'Until he is, or until they must surrender.' Ron nodded. To the guards, she said, "'See that this woman is well-fed and well-treated.' Beodog and her escort had turned to go when Stark said, "'Wait!' The guards looked at Ron, who nodded, and glanced quizzically at Stark. Stark said, "'Is Fiolon dead?' Ron hesitated. Then she smiled. No. You have the most damnably tough mind, Stark. You struck deep, but not deep enough. He may still die, but no, he's not dead. She turned to Beodog and said with easy mockery, You needn't hold anger against Stark. I'm the one who should be angry. Her eyes came back to Stark. They didn't look angry. Stark said, There's something else. Conan. The Conan that used to be before Falga. Beudog's Conan. Yeah. Why did he betray his people? Ron studied him. Her strange pale lips curved, her sharp white teeth glistening wickedly with barbed humor. Then she turned to Beodog. 
Beodog was still standing like a carved image, but her smooth muscles were ridged with tension, and her eyes were not the eyes of an image. Conan or Stark, said Ron. She's still Beodog, isn't she? All right, I'll tell you. Conan betrayed his people because I put it into his mind to do it. He fought me. He made a good fight of it. But he wasn't quite as tough as you are, Stark." There was silence. For the first time since entering the room, Hugh Stark looked at Beodog. After a moment she sighed and lifted her chin and smiled, a deep, faint smile. The guards walked out beside her. But she was more erect and lighter of step than either of them. Well said Bron when they were gone. And what about you, Hugh Stark called Conan? Have I any choice? I always keep my bargains. Then give me my dough and let me clear the hell out of here. Sure that's what you want? That's what I want. You could stay a while, you know. With you. Ron lifted her frosty white shoulders. I'm not promising half my kingdom or even part of it, but you might be amused. I got no sense of humor. Don't you even want to see what happens to Crom de Hugh? Stark got up. He said savagely, The hell with Crom de Hugh! And Beodog? And Beodog! He stopped then fixed Ron with uncompromising yellow eyes. No, not Beodog. What are you going to do to her? Nothing. Don't give me that. I say again, nothing. Whatever is done, her own people will do. What do you mean? I mean that little dagger in the sheaf will be rested, cared for, and fattened for a few days. Then I shall take her aboard my own ship and join the fleet before Crom de Hugh. Beodog will be made quite comfortable at the masthead, where her people can see her plainly. She will stay there until the rock surrenders. It depends on her own people how long she stays. She'll be given water. Not much, but enough. Stark stared at her. He stared at her a long time. Then he spat deliberately on the floor and said in a perfectly flat voice, How soon can I get out of here? Ron laughed, a small, casual chuckle. <laughs> Humans, she said, are so damned queer, I don't think I'll ever understand them. She reached out and struck a gong that stood in a carved frame beside the couch. The soft, deep, shimmering note had a sad quality of nostalgia. Ron lay back against the silken cushions and sighed. Ah, goodbye, Hugh Stark. A pause, then regretfully. Goodbye, Conan. They had made good time along the rim of the Red Sea. One of Ron's galleys had taken them to the edge of the southern ocean and left them on a narrow shingle beach under the cliffs. From there they had climbed to the rim rock and gone on foot. Hugh Stark called Conan, and four of Ron's arrogant, shining men. 
They were supposed to be guide and escort. They were courteous, and they kept pace uncomplainingly, though Stark marched as though the devil were pricking his heels. But they were armed, and Stark was not. Sometimes, very faintly, Stark was aware of Ron's mind touching his with the velvet delicacy of a cat's paw. Sometimes he started out of his sleep with her image sharp in his mind, her lips touched with a mocking, secret smile. He didn't like that. He didn't like it at all. But he liked even less the picture that stayed with him, waking or sleeping, the picture he wouldn't look at, the picture of a tall woman with hair like loose fire on her neck, walking on light, proud feet between her guards. She'll be given water, Ron said. Not much, but enough. Stark gripped the solid squareness of the box that held his million credits and set the miles reeling backward from under his sandals. On the fifth night one of Ron's men spoke quietly across the campfire. Tomorrow, he said, we'll reach the pass. Stark got up and went away by himself to the edge of the rim rock that fell sheer to the burning sea. He sat down. The red fog wrapped him like a mist of blood. He thought of the blood on Beodog's breast the first time he saw her. He thought of the blood on his knife, crusted and dried. He thought of the blood poured rank and smoking into the gutters of Crom de Hue. The fog has to be red, he thought. Of all the goddamn colors in the universe, it has to be red. Red like Beodog's hair. He held out his hands and looked at them, because he could still feel the silken warmth of that hair against his skin. There was nothing there now but the old white scars of another man's battles. He set his fists against his temples and wished for his old body back again, the little stunted abortion that had clawed and scratched its way to survival through sheer force of mind. A most damnably tough mind, Ron had said. Yeah, it had had to be tough. But a mind was a mind. It didn't have emotions. It just figured out something coldly and then went ahead and never questioned. And it controlled the body utterly. Because the body was only the worthless machinery that carried the mind around. Worthless, <laughs> yeah. The few women he'd ever looked at had told him that. And he hadn't even minded much. The old body hadn't given him any trouble. He was having trouble now. Stark got up and walked. Tomorrow we reach the pass. Tomorrow we go away from the Red Sea. There are nine planets in the whole damn belt. There are women on all of them, all shapes and colors and sizes, human, semi-human, and God knows what. With a million credits a guy could buy half of them, and with Conan's body he could buy the rest. What's a woman, anyway? Only a... Water. She'd be given water. Not much, but enough. Conan reached out and took hold of a spire of rock, and his muscles stood out like knotted ropes. Oh, God, he whispered. What's the matter with me? Love. It wasn't God who answered. It was Ron. 
He saw her plainly in his mind, heard her voice like a silver bell. Conan was a man, Hugh Stark. He was whole, body and heart and brain. He knew how to love, and with him it wasn't women, but one woman, and her name was Beodog. I broke him, but it wasn't easy. I can't break you. Stark stood for a long, long time. He did not move except that he trembled. Then he took from his belt the box containing his million credits and threw it out as far as he could over the cliff edge. The red mist swallowed it up. He did not hear it strike the surface of the sea. Perhaps in that sea there was no splashing. He did not wait to find out. He turned back along the rim rock toward a place where he remembered a cleft or chimney leading down. And the four shining men who wore Ron's harness came silently out of the heavy luminous night and ringed him in. Their sword points caught sharp red glimmers from the sky. Stark had nothing on him but a kilt and its sandals, and a cloak of tight-woven spider silk that shed the rain. "'Ron sent you?' he said. The men nodded. "'To kill me?' Again they nodded. The blood drained out of Stark's face, leaving it gray and stony under the bronze. His hand went to his throat over the gold fastening of his cloak. The four men closed in like dancers. Stark loosened his cloak and swung it like a whip across their faces. It confused them for a second, for a heartbeat, no more, but long enough. Stark left two of them to tangle their blades in the heavy fabric and leaped aside. A sharp edge slipped and turned along his ribs, and then he had reached in low and caught a man around the ankles and used the thrashing body for a flail. The body was strangely light, as though the bones in it were no more than rigid membrane like a fish. If he had stayed to fight, they would have finished him in seconds. They were fighting men, and quick. But Stark didn't stay. He gained his moment's grace and used it. They were hard on his heels, their points all but pricking his back as he ran, but he made it. Along the rim rock, out along a narrow tongue that jutted over the sea, and then outward, far outward, into red fog and dim fire that rolled around his plummeting body. Oh, God, he thought, if I guessed wrong and there is a beach. The breath tore out of his lungs. His ears cracked, went dead. He held his arms out beyond his head, the thumbs locked together, his neck braced forward against the terrific upward push. He struck the surface of the sea. There was no splash. Dim, coiling fire that drifted with infinite laziness around him, caressing his body with slow, tingling sparks. A feeling of lightness, as though his flesh had become one with the drifting fire. A sense of suffocation that had no basis in fact, and gave way gradually to a strange exhilaration. There was no shock of impact, no crushing pressure, merely a cushioning softness like dropping into a bed of compressed air. Stark felt himself turning end over end, pinwheel fashion, and then that stopped so that he sank quietly and without haste to the bottom. 
or rather into the crystalline upper reaches of what seemed to be a forest. He could see it spreading away under the downward-sloping floor of the ocean, into the vague red shadows of distance. Slender, fantastic trunks upholding a maze of delicate shining branches without leaves or fruit. They were like trees exquisitely molded from ice, transparent, holding the lambent shifting fire of the strange sea. Stark didn't think that they were or ever had been alive. More like coral, he thought, or some vagary of mineral deposit. Beautiful, though, like something you'd see in a dream. Beautiful, silent, and somehow deadly. He couldn't explain that feeling of deadliness. Nothing moved in the red drifts between the trunks. It was nothing about the trees themselves, it was just something he sensed. He began to move among the upper branches, following the downward drop of the slope. He found that he could swim quite easily, or perhaps it was more like flying. The dense gas buoyed him up, almost balancing the weight of his body, so that it was easy to swoop along, catching a crystal branch and using it as a lever to throw himself forward to the next one. He went deeper and deeper into the heart of the forbidden southern ocean. Nothing stirred. The fairy forest stretched limitless ahead, and Stark was afraid. Ron came into his mind abruptly. Her face, clearly outlined, was full of mockery. "'I'm going to watch you die,' Hugh Stark called Conan. "'But before you die, I'll show you something. Look.'" End of Part 3